just a reminder, here at That's So Chronic, we are dedicated to sharing personal stories. We are not advocating any type of treatment, therapy, procedure or intervention. Everyone is unique, so please seek professional medical advice before making any decisions for yourself or for others. Welcome to That's So Chronic, the podcast where I, Jess Bryan, interview some incredible people from around the world that are thriving and sometimes only just surviving with chronic illnesses, life-changing injuries, and potentially disastrous diagnoses. Today we're heading to Auckland and I'm chatting to Holly Mercer all about her diagnosis of Bichette's and neuro Bichette's. It was a long road to get to the point of receiving a diagnosis for Holly and that's what we're discussing today. In this episode, Holly talks us through the 15 or so years of constantly wondering what was happening to her, how she imagined receiving a diagnosis would look like, and then the reality of actually getting that diagnosis, what Bichette's is, the treatment plan, and how chronic illness has inspired her art. It was an absolute pleasure getting to know Holly, and I just know you're going to love this episode. Welcome to That's So Chronic. Holly, welcome to That So Chronic. I'm so excited to have you here. If people don't know, you are an artist. You uh, create some really amazing large-scale textile installations. You're also a poet. You've been combining the two practices together, and you've also been creating art about chronic illness as well, which I'm so excited to learn more about. Because yeah. you have a diagnosis of neurobetchett's disease, as well as mm-hmm. relapsing polychondritis and interstitial mm-hmm. cystitis. Yes. Where do we begin with all of this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so all three of the diagnoses, diagnoses came about in the same sort of couple years. Okay. But I have been ill and showing symptoms since I was like five years old. I was going to say when we were chatting before in some messages, Mm -hmm. you mentioned that ever since you were younger, you were just always sick. Yeah, yeah. What was that like growing up? Really, really full on. I think it's shaped a lot of who I am now. I have an incredible family and my mum especially has been like my absolute like fighter for trying to get answers for it I just know that I love your mum I can just feel it in my bones mums are incredible (laughs) especially I think when you're sick you're like wow mums are great yeah mums are the best yeah so when I was born I sort of immediately started having some small issues like I don't know a lot about it, but I was on antibiotics quite a lot when I was little. I had a lot of ear infections. Like I just seemed to have a weak immune system. Yeah. And that sort of just kept happening and then sort of really ramped up when I hit around like five or six. I started getting UTIs and kidney infections constantly. Um, Wow. Yeah. So I had recurrent UTIs like my whole childhood from like five until... They probably only started to like stop around like 17. Wow. So I was on full-time antibiotics a lot when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So I used to take them every day for like three years straight. Um, it was really confusing. We couldn't, I, you know, I was seeing pediatricians and uh, my mum was, I grew up in Wanaka in the South Island and 
obviously there's no hospital nearby. So my mum used to drive like three hours to Dunedin for one appointment for me and take me there and back in a day. And we used to go see specialists and stuff there. And there was a lot of the unfortunately usual thing for a lot of people who are undiagnosed where they sort of after they couldn't find answers after a while they would start to sort of go like oh do you think maybe you're making it up like are you sure that you're actually sick this often they thought that I was doing my you know when you have a UTI you have to do a urine test and they test it yeah they thought that maybe I was doing that wrong and that it was changing the results how could you Um, be doing a urine test wrong (laughs) at six years old I was really like (laughs) You're like, I'm ready to mess with the system right yeah, now. Yeah, <laughs> I've got it down. Can't wait to take unnecessary antibiotics. Oh, um, my God. But, yeah, so that was sort of like the first stuff that started happening. And then it really sort of snowballed as I got older and a lot more stuff was coming up. And um, I always had gut issues. Yeah, a lot of weird stuff started happening that no one could quite explain for us and then when you moved out of home Mm -hmm. and you went to Wellington to study Mm -hmm. did you were you still experiencing these symptoms and just no one knew what was going on yeah so my last years of high school I started getting really sick I Mm -hmm. my fatigue was like unreal I couldn't I couldn't make it to school and I was fainting all the time yeah and was pretty much just consistently being told it was psychosomatic and I was making it up and it was just that you know I was a teenager and I was tired I was and it it just didn't make sense but it gets to a point I think where you start believing it yeah and I think through no fault of their own my family started to believe it a little bit as well and going like well are you are you sick are you trying hard enough that sort of stuff which I don't blame them for because I had the same thoughts yeah year 12 I did Um, something called health school so I couldn't go to school anymore I was missing so much of school that I was not passing oh okay so they did health school which is where they send you a tutor who comes and does your schoolwork with you at home wow when you are well enough to yeah it was incredible so I had a tutor who came and helped me or I would when I was well enough I would sometimes go into school for like two hours and we would work in the library until I had to go home yeah and yeah, around that time, I ended up in hospital a couple of times. I had a really bad, really bad pains happening in my GI system. And it got so bad one day that they thought I had appendicitis. Right. So was rushed to Dunedin Hospital and they took my appendix out, but said that when they were in there, my appendix was slightly inflamed, but it was mostly the gut all around my appendix. Okay was really, really inflamed and there was a lot of blood floating around in my in my gut. Yeah. And then they just did nothing else about it. Took the appendix yeah. and got went. <laughs> just took my appendix out and said, that's probably why your appendix was inflamed. There was a lot of blood in there. We don't know where it was coming from. I don't think they even looked. <laughs> it was really frustrating. So um, I managed to get myself back to school in year 13 and got myself merit endorsements for year 12 and 13 in the same year amazing because I really wanted to go to uni yeah and I had sort of gotten to a point where I was I had like talked myself into just pretending that I wasn't sick anymore so I could start doing the things I wanted to do so yeah I got into Toifakati the drama school in Wellington and yeah moved to Wellington and I was like really ready to start gearing up and like living my life and it was really good for the first year I did okay 
I was sick all the time and I was going to see the uni doctors, which was like not the best GP care because you weren't getting the same doctor ever. Right. So yeah. And then in my second and third year, I got really, really sick. So during this time as you're growing up, are they doing Mm -hmm. tests to like at least rule out something or or is it just like, oh, we don't know. See you later. There were tests, but I was quite young and I think they put a lot of it up to my age at the time. I remember getting like a couple of scans. They were really worried about my kidneys. Right. So there was a lot of stuff that they were testing around my kidneys and I was getting blood tests all the time. Mm -hmm. They wanted to biopsy my kidney, but there wasn't a lot of reason why they wanted to. I think they just run out of ideas and my mum sort of put her foot down and said, no, if we don't have to, I don't want her to have a kidney biopsied, which I'm glad she did because I didn't need to. Yeah. Yeah. So they were doing like some slight stuff, but, you know, I was seeing them like every six months or so. And I think when they ran out of the really logical explanations, then that was the end of it mostly Mm. yeah and so then in your final two years yeah uni things just (laughs) ramped up yeah I so I did the management course at toy so um it was like quite physical we were doing a lot of rigging and everything Mm -hmm. and you know it was long hours it was really hard work but I had a we had a very small class of 10 and I got very lucky my class was absolutely incredible and <laughs> took a lot of the brunt. There were a couple of times where I would walk into sort of like the plaza and I had just been to a doctor's appointment and one of them would look at me and I would just burst into tears. Yeah. And so, you know, being away from home and everything, they sort of became like my support system. Yeah. And then, yeah, my final year, I was doing my uh, final year project, my big project. I was producing a festival of work and development and I planned my year really badly so I was doing my major work and then I took mostly all of my electives in the same term oh wow so I was really really stressed and really Mm. really busy and during this year I had started to get my first really bad symptoms of Bichette's okay what symptoms were those so I had had mouth ulcers my whole life yeah really really badly And this was the first time that I started to get ulcers on my mucous membranes elsewhere. So in my nose and on my vulva. Wow. And I was convinced that I had an STD. Yeah. Because I couldn't think of another explanation, but I also couldn't figure out where it would have come from. Yeah. So I was going to the uni doctors and they kept telling me that I had herpes and kept testing me and it kept coming back negative. Right. And I was getting like the most invasive STI checks and like I had ulcers on my vulva and they were incredibly painful like the worst pain I've ever experienced yeah and they were like sticking those scratchy swabs all up in them and every time they were coming back negative and they were saying I don't know why we keep getting false negatives and I was like what if they're not false yeah (laughs) (laughs) and I had them done like maybe five times and they were all negative but they couldn't they just couldn't figure out what else it was yeah. So yeah, I was having really, really bad flares of that, which meant I couldn't go to school. I couldn't go to the, like, I couldn't urinate. Yeah. I couldn't have a shower. I couldn't move. They were so painful. And then uh, shortly after, I was seeing a gynecologist privately and she was worried that I had endo because I was having okay. so many symptoms in my gut yeah. and so many symptoms, what we thought was like, you know, my reproductive system, but it was actually my bladder. Yeah. So she was monitoring me really closely. She was awesome. And my parents were paying crazy amounts of money for me to see her. 
and she got really worried about a lot of my blood tests Mm -hmm. that were being ignored and she said one day she called me in for an appointment that I hadn't scheduled myself and she sat me down I was in the middle of my major work and she said I've just got some of your blood test results back and your renal function is so low that if you don't stop working I'm going to have to put you on dialysis and I was like what and she showed me my results and I I don't know why it happened I've never had it before but my renal functions my kidney function was like dangerously low and she was like this is what we see in people with like kidney failure wow and no one from like the GP had mentioned this or nothing no no So yeah, I got really sick. I I knew I was really sick at that time. I had heaps of symptoms and yeah, so I tried to talk to my tutors about it and that whole rigmarole with trying to get extensions and everything and it just didn't go very well. There was, there was a real culture of like, you just get, you just get it done. Like you, you get through it and then that's it. The show must go on. Yeah. Yeah. Like that post that you made the other day and it was like a very toxic it was, yeah, it was really hard because I was so sick and I didn't know what else to do. And I was so close to getting my degree. I was so close to graduating and I didn't want to give up. So I just kept going. And I can only imagine that because you've been so unwell for so much of your life, you're probably really good at showing up and pretending that everything's okay. Yeah, a lot more than I realized. Like now looking back on it, I'm like, oh, I owe a lot of being undiagnosed to how far I managed to get because I think I would have been a lot softer with myself if I had a diagnosis back then. Yeah. But because I didn't, I was like, all good, just keep going. Yeah. Like, everybody must go through this stuff. Everyone must feel this sick sometimes. And, you know, I'd been told my whole life, like, you're not actually sick. Yeah. And so I was like, I'm just weaker than everyone else. <laughs> so. And then to kind of get this from, like, the same sort of narrative from uni of being like well we can't really give you any more extensions yeah that's really hard yeah so but I did it I made it through I graduated which was really good and then pretty much straight after graduation I moved to Auckland okay which is where I am now and that's when you found a doctor that yeah was starting to piece some things together Auckland's health system oh Auckland district health board Game changer. I must say, I also transferred from Wellington to Auckland and it was just the best thing I had ever done. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. I, yeah, it was around this time that I sort of started realizing I have no idea what it's like now, but my experience of the Otago health system was horrible, Mm -hmm. like really shocking. So moving to Auckland, I was like, oh my gosh, this is what it's like to have a specialist that actually wants to find out what's wrong with you. Yeah. Which was amazing. And it all happened so quickly after that. And so how did you go about finding a specialist? Like, how did you know, like, what specialist you needed for all of this? (laughs) So before I left Wellington, I, and before I had gotten a gynecologist privately in Wellington, I had been also referred publicly through Wellington. Okay. So after I graduated, actually, and I was still living there, I finally got the appointment. Right. <laughs> um, so, and I went to cancel it. And then I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go. And then I'm going to say, hey, I'm moving to Auckland. Maybe you could transfer me. Yes. Amazing. So I went to the appointment and it was the worst appointment <gasps> I have ever had in my life. I had a student doctor. Um, so they were training and I was left alone in a room with him. Oh. And he was so nervous 
that he couldn't get a full sentence out and it made me so nervous. And we were talking about really intimate stuff. Yeah. And he was shaking, like he was visibly shaking and sweating because he was so nervous. And I was like, I don't feel safe at all. And like the door was closed. We were like in a little room together. There was no other doctor there overseeing it. He was just getting like my personal history, but it was so uncomfortable for me. And then, yeah, when the doctor finally came back and I said, you know, these have been the problems. I'm having them all the time. No one can give me answers, but I'm actually moving in two months. So I'm just wondering if you can get me referred to gynecology in Auckland. So that's what happened. Okay. So I moved, was there for about two months and then got a call with an appointment. And I was like, cool, great. And so this was through the public system? Yeah. So this was all public now. Um, And I've been in the public system since, which I feel really lucky about. Yeah. And I've actually managed to do okay with appointments. It's I found out it's a lot easier to get people to listen to you once you have a diagnosis. They're much more willing to take you seriously. So yeah, I went to see a gynecologist and she is like my hero now. I love her. She was incredible. I don't see her anymore. But yeah, she got me in. She did like my full history with me. She talked through like everything ever that was happening in my body so she could get like a full scope of everything. And she sent me off for a bunch of tests and she sent me to see uh, a colleague of hers who was working in urology okay who I still see who was also incredible and between the two of them they sort of came up with some ideas of what they thought might be going on for me and that was sort of where things slowed down for a bit before I saw them again okay and then I had a really bad flare and ended up in hospital so what was happening when that flare happened like what were your symptoms during that time so I when I flare mostly it'll start with mouth ulcers okay and they get they're not like a few mouth ulcers like when I used to flare I used to get them like the size of a 10 cent coin wow and I used to get like minimum five okay at a time and it could go up to like and 20 yeah and I couldn't eat and they would be like down the back of my throat like all along my gums under my tongue on the roof of my mouth, everywhere. Yeah. And I would have to go liquid diet sometimes when they were really bad. And drinking water felt like swallowing glass. Like it was really painful. Yeah. And they were taking two weeks to heal. And would anything help them? Like I'm thinking, yeah. like, did Bongella help at all? <laughs> Bongella very quickly stopped working yeah I was gonna say you're pretty immune (laughs) Um, to that after a while yeah I mean I've been getting mouth ulcers since I can remember yeah so we sort of tried everything under the sun but eventually when I was probably like 14 I was introduced to Oracort which is like a paste and before you go to bed like after you've brushed your teeth and everything you like get a little bit and you dab it on you don't rub it because it's really gritty Uh and you stick it on the ulcer and then you like try to keep your mouth super still and that heals them oh wow yeah so that made them heal like twice as fast so they were gone within like a week or five days yeah which was amazing but um it was a prescription only I don't know if it still is so every time I got ulcers which was I literally never didn't have one Mm -hmm. I would have to go and get more and they give them to you in like tiny little five gram um tubes so (laughs) That was working, but not when I flared really badly. Mm-hmm. So I would get a bunch of ulcers in my mouth. And then if I felt just like generally really wiped out, really tired, I knew that I was getting really sick. And then I would get vulval ulcers. Yeah. And then my bladder would go up really bad and my gut was always really bad. Okay. So I 
went to A&E, something else might have happened to cause it, probably something with my gut. Mm -hmm. And it's usually my partner, Logan, who makes the decision (laughs) that we have to go to the hospital now um, because I'm really reluctant to go and still am. So we went, I got admitted and funnily enough, my mum was actually coming up to Auckland the next day to visit my grandma who lives up here, who I think was also in hospital or had just gotten out of hospital. So I went to the hospital. I went through the full, like, they don't see you until like 4 a.m. You're exhausted. I got taken into an examination room. A really lovely nurse came in and examined the ulcers. And I gave the whole spiel about like, they keep saying it's herpes. I don't think it's herpes. It's always negative, blah, blah, blah. And she looked really concerned, (laughs) which freaked me out a little bit. But the real problem was my gut was the problem I was having. So I got They never know where to transfer me to once I get out of the emergency room. So I ended up getting taken up to, I think it was called like general women's health where the gynecologists were. So I got sent up to a room there. I woke up in the morning and my mum was sitting beside me, which was just like the best feeling in the world. So I was like, oh, mum. And uh, I had this really lovely nurse. doctor come in and she explained that she had been on the phone to the gynecologist I was seeing okay and they had been talking through what they think was going on Mm -hmm. they said the first thing that they really thought that it was most likely was Crohn's okay um, which had been brought up to me quite a few times because I've always had a real issue with eating when I was little when I would eat dinner I would have to lie down straight afterwards like I always really had trouble digesting food comfortably and then uh you know I'd had all the tests for like celiac and everything which came back negative which is funny because I since do not eat gluten anymore and it's made a massive difference and I am lactose intolerant so they thought it might be Crohn's disease which can sometimes cause genital lesions oh yeah so Crohn's can move to other parts of your body, which I didn't know. And it yes, can sometimes yeah. manifest on your vulva. So I was like, oh, it would make so much sense. Yeah. And I was like, great, I'm going to get a diagnosis. And I had just been like waiting for this for like 15 years. I was like, I feel like I've been gunning for this moment for such a long yeah. time. And then she was like, there are two other things. Lichen sclerosis, which is a condition where the, which affects, it's a dermatological condition, which affects the skin of your vulva Mm -hmm. and causes kind of like lesions, I think. Yeah. And she said, but I don't think it's that because they're not presenting the same way. And then she said, and the other thing is Bichette's disease. Ah. And I was like, huh. And I was like, that sounds familiar. And I think I'd found it when I was Googling, like, why have I got ulcers on my vulva? And it had come up, but I was like reading through all the criteria for it and I was like oh that's not me no I'm not, it's not that serious yeah so very quickly discounted it so they discharged me and they had sent me off for a bunch of tests and I was given another appointment to go and see uh the I called her a urologist before she was not a urologist she's a dermatologist a dermatologist okay. a dermatologist <laughs> so I had another appointment with her yeah so they booked me in for a colonoscopy and a gastroscopy And I went back to see the dermatologist and she managed to get me when I had an ulcer or just healed ulcer and she took a biopsy of it. Okay. Which was super painful. Yeah. And it took a really long time for it to heal. 
because they had to take a quite deep. Yeah, wow. Um, so I knew that I was waiting on the results from that. They were sending the biopsy off to be examined and they wanted to chat about it with some other doctors. So I knew it was going to be a wee while before I got that. And in the meantime, I went and had a colonoscopy and gastroscopy. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the time I had it, I go through bouts where I have really bad symptoms, really like no symptoms at all. Yeah. And I was having no symptoms at all. And I was like, this is classic. Yeah. But they did find like two very small ulcers in my gut. Okay. Funnily enough, right where my appendix used to be. Ah. Oh. Which is where they are most often in Bichette's disease is right in that part. It's called your like terminal ileum or something. Okay. And that's where it's like most of it happens. Right. So I had two little ones in there. So was it possibly a good thing that they had taken the appendix out? Like, would they have been able to see that, I wonder, if the appendix was still there? Well, I think it was a good thing in the end because every time I ended up at the hospital being like, I've got severe stomach pain, they went, you probably have appendicitis. Yes, and I was like, yeah. I don't have an appendix. Yeah, done, like, cancel <laughs> So they ruled that out quickly, <laughs> yeah. um, which was good. And I guess um, if I had lots of blood and it had inflamed it once it was probably a good thing that it wasn't getting inflamed again yeah totally yeah so yeah um that all happened and then I was working a retail job in Auckland which I absolutely loved I was working at um Cheetah Outlet do you know Cheetah no Cheetah oh yes yeah is it like homewares yeah it's actually pronounced Cheetah which I didn't know until my interview (laughs) (laughs) they were like why do you want to work at Cheetah and I was like Oh, it's cheetah. Uh, cheetah. <laughs> I worked at the outlet in Mount Eden for like two years, and it was my favorite job I've ever had because they were incredible, incredible people. Yeah. And they became like three mums to me, and I still yeah. go and visit them. So I was on the bus home from work one afternoon, and I got a phone call from an Auckland number, and I was like, oh, it's probably the hospital. So I answered it, and it was my dermatologist. Mm hmm. And she said, hi, Holly, do you have a moment to talk? And I was like, yeah, I'm just on the bus. And she was like, okay, do you want to get off the bus? And I was like, oh. What is happening? Yeah. Okay. And my stop was coming up. I was like, yeah, just give me two seconds. So I got off the bus and I was like, yeah, okay, hi. And she was like, "Um, okay, so we've got your biopsy results back and – I really need you to come in and see me as soon as you can. And I was like, oh, my God, do I have, like, cancer? Like, why are you calling me like this? And I was just expecting a call that was like, okay, we found, like, Crohn's disease and, like, here's the next step. So I freaked out and then called my mum. I was like, mum, they found something in my biopsy. What am I going to do? Yeah. And I ended up going back to see them and she sort of explained the results to me. That, that, that they'd found like a form of vasculitis. So that's sort of what Bichette's is. Okay. And that they think it was most likely Bichette's disease and that I needed to be re-referred to rheumatology so that they could do more testing to make sure that that's what it was. Finally, some sort of answer. Yeah, yeah. Would you be able to explain your definition of Bichette's disease. Yes. So I describe it as, so it's an autoimmune disease. And so my body mistakenly attacks my own cells and tissue and it affects my blood vessels. So it's multi-systemic, which means it affects lots of parts and organs in your body. There's actually, 
a fun little saying with Bichette's that's um, where the blood flows, Bichette's goes, <laughs> so, which just means wherever you have blood vessels, yeah. it can attack, which is literally everywhere in your body. Wow. So that's why it's a rheumatologist. Yeah. I still quite don't know what rheumatology exactly does. They do like arthritis and all of that stuff. Oh, and okay. people ask me all the time and I Google it all the time, but I'm like, I don't, it, it says like <laughs> rheumatoid conditions and I don't quite know what that means. But yeah, so it's blood vessels, so it can attack any organ in your body mm-hmm. and it is a progressive disease. So it does progress to different parts. Okay. And uh, once the idea is that you can get it to a place where you are in remission. Okay. So you have moments of remission and then moments of relapse. And so when you went to the rheumatologist, they were able to do more tests? Yeah, I have a really lovely rheumatologist. He, it took me a while to warm up to him. He was, he's like a very intelligent, like direct person. Yeah. And I was very confused about what was going on because I was sure that I didn't have Bouchette's and all of this stuff, when I read about it, like really deeply, really freaked me out. Yeah. And so I went and had an appointment with him. My mum came with me. Uh, We went through my full history again. We did the whole thing. And he did a couple little tests in the office on me. He had an ultrasound machine in his office and ultrasound my bones to check if my joints were arthritic or, you know, had any inflammation or anything because that's quite common with Bichette's. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we sort of talked through a bunch of stuff. And I think he kind of made the diagnosis that day of being like, yeah, we think it's sort of you hit most of the criteria. Yeah, it's really hard to remember. Nobody ever gives me like a very solid, like, you have this. I've never had that moment, which is what I always imagined it would be like. I was like, I'm going to get diagnosed one day and it's going to be like in the movies where you sit behind a desk and the person says, you have this. And then you like, everything goes like white and you you can't hear anything. And But it was never like that. It was always like a very subtle, like, yeah, okay, so we'll do this instead of like, you have Bichette's disease. Yeah. They just started talking about treatment. Okay. What is the treatment that you can do for Bichette's disease? It's so, it's so rare. Bichette's is so rare, especially in this part of the world. Yeah. It's most common in like the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And very, like, it's less than one in 100,000 people have it. My rheumatologist told me that he thinks there's around 10 to 20 people in New Zealand with it. Oh. Yeah. Have you, like, connected with any of them? Very recently, I connected with a woman that I can't remember. How, oh, <laughs> I went onto the Rare Disorders uh, website to try yeah. and find a support group because I was desperate to connect with someone when I yeah. first got diagnosed. And there was nothing. There was nothing. So I emailed them and I was like, hi, I've just been diagnosed with Bichette's. Do you have anything around that? And they were like, we have literally never heard of it. Oh, my goodness. There's nothing that we can find. We have no emails from anyone else. But do you want me to put you on a list? And if anyone contacts us, we can get in touch with you. And I was like, please. Three years later, I got an email from her, which was like, maybe like two months ago. Wow. And the same lady from rearedisorder.org emailed me and she was like, hi, Holly, you emailed us three years ago. I've just had an email from a lady who is um, in the process of being diagnosed. Do you want to be connected? And I was like, yes, please. Oh my God. So 
yeah, she shared our emails with each other and we emailed a few times and she hasn't got a diagnosis yet, but yeah, she thinks she has Bichette's and I was like, you're the first person I've met in New Zealand with it. Yeah. Lots of people overseas. Mm -hmm. There's really great Facebook groups, mostly people from the US and the UK, which have been really invaluable to me because it's the best place to go for information because there's nothing online about it. And my doctors know very little about it. Yeah. It's like more common than not that when I see a doctor, the first thing they do is Google Bichette's in front of me. Right, yeah. Yeah, so I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I was just thinking if anyone is listening and you are in New Zealand yeah, and you have right? you got to get in touch with us. you got to hit me up. <laughs> um, treatments are tricky because this is what I started talking about. It's so rare that there's not really any, like, typical treatment line. Yeah. And it's so dependent on what organs you have affected. Of course, yeah. Yeah. So mine was, uh, so I've got it on my skin, Mm -hmm. mucous membranes, my bladder, my GI tract, and now my brain. Yeah. And they're thinking maybe it's affecting my heart now as well. Okay. So the first line is always a drug called colchicine, Mm -hmm. which is um, a drug that's used to treat gout actually oh okay yeah Yeah. so I don't know how it works or what it is but Mm. it's the first thing that they put you on yeah so I started taking colchicine and it made very little difference to my ulcers and to my inflammation but it helped my joint pain slightly okay so We tried that for a couple of months and then realized pretty quickly it wasn't really doing anything. Mm -hmm. So he started me on, what was next? I think he started me on azathioprine next, which is an immunosuppressant. Mm -hmm. So I started taking that at like 75 milligrams and it worked so well. It was amazing. And at the same time, I was getting uh, a lot of nerve pain happening. So they started me on amitriptyline, yeah. which you took? Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, which was unbelievable. Yeah. Um, the sleep. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the sleep the first few weeks. Yeah. I couldn't. I accidentally took my first dose at midday. <gasps> no one told yeah. me. <laughs> so, and then I had a doctor's appointment and I just remember oh, my mum was in Auckland and we went to the doctor's about something. And I was just sitting in the doctor's chair <laughs> looking at her and I was so tired and I just kept being like, what is happening to me? <laughs> I was like, let's leave. I'm going to fall asleep. So yeah, took them at night after that. Mm-hmm. And the azathioprine worked really well for a while, like maybe like three, six months. And then I started having flares again. Right. So they bumped it up really high to the maximum dose that I could be on for my weight. Mm-hmm. And it was incredible. I felt so good yeah. for such a long time. I was like, oh my God, this is the first time I felt like, is this what well feels like? Yeah. Because I had felt so sick for such a long time. Mm-hmm. It did make me really sick at the start. It's it's like a very low dose form of oral chemotherapy. Yeah. So, and I react with drugs quite quickly with my tummy. So I vomited for like two days straight when I first started it. Mm-hmm. But after that, and I felt so good. And then all of a sudden, I and you have to get um, blood tests every month with it because yeah. um, it can affect your liver quite quickly. Mm-hmm. And um, there's something else. 
there's some kind of metabolite that they have to look out for while you're on it as well. So you have to get a blood test every month. So all of a sudden I was feeling so drained and I couldn't think straight. And it was like the weirdest feeling. It's the weirdest fatigue I've ever felt. And my body just started feeling really heavy and I was fainting all the time. Like I was blacking out really often. And then one night I was in my flat alone and I just started throwing up like crazy and yeah. blacking out every time I finished throwing up. And I was like, I'm going to vomit and swallow my own vomit if I don't do something. Yeah. And I really didn't want to go to A&E. So I called the Healthline nurse and told her and she was like, you have to go. Yeah. <laughs> so I went and I had my monthly blood test a week before and they brought the results and they went, your neutrophils, which is a white blood cell count, mm -hmm. your neutrophils um, were really low. And I was like, yeah, I'm on immunosuppressants. And this was right at the start of COVID as well. So I was yeah. like, they were like, well, you need to put a mask on for starters because you've got no immune system at the moment. Yeah. And then they took my blood again like they always do and they came back and they were like, you've literally got no neutrophils. Oh, my god. It was gosh. zero. And they were like, you, you're neutropenic. <gasps> that might explain why this is happening. Yeah. And then they, you know, went through the whole change of drugs thing mm -hmm. with me and I was like, well, I just started my new dose of azathioprine. I'm on 125. And they were like, okay, well, you have two options. You can stay here. It was a weekend. They were yeah. like, you can stay here for two more nights and we will try and get in touch with your rheumatologist on Monday or you can go home. And I was like, I want to go home. Yeah. <laughs> so I went home and I saw my rheumatologist and he lowered my dose again. And for the next year, we tried a lot of different mixes. Yeah. So we have been shifting my dose of azathioprine up and down quite a lot. And I started on another drug called cyclosporin, which is another immunosuppressant that they give mm -hmm. to transplant patients okay. to keep your immune system from attacking your new organ. Yep. And that was a really intense one. That one made me feel really horrible. And the, when you pet, you had to keep the little capsule in its sealed packet until you were literally taking it. Right. And you'd pierce the packet and it would smell like marijuana, like it stunk of weed. Wow. Random. And I was like, this is so strange. Yeah. So that was a really intense drug and it wasn't working. Yeah. Um, I was still flaring all the time. So it felt like this really horrible balance between like either I take the drug that keeps my bichettes at bay yeah. and I'm neutropenic and I feel like shit all the time or I try these other drugs until we find something that at least makes me feel a little bit better. Yeah. So, yeah, we did that for like a full year and then finally, oh, and I'm on prednisone this whole time as well. Okay, yeah. So as soon as I flare, I'll do a course of prednisone. And yep. I was on full-time low dose for a while as well. Mm -hmm. But I'm not on it anymore. And I haven't had to take any for a really long time, which is amazing because yeah. I hate, I hate prednisone. Yeah. Um, but it is a miracle drug. Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry. My partner is making a smoothie right now. I no, hope it's not too right. loud. <laughs> um, uh, so finally I went to see my rheumatologist and he asked how everything was going and every time I see my GP and she's worried about something she'll give him a call so like he gets yeah. updates which is quite often and I sort of went to the appointment and he was like yeah, it's not working and I was like yeah. no it's not working so we applied for special authority for me to start on infliximab infusions okay 
so I wasn't eligible for them until I had tried at least three different drugs, I think. Right. And they aren't funded unless you have special authority. So I had to do all the drug trials first and prove that they weren't working. And then he had to apply for them to be funded for me. Yeah. Or else I would have had to have paid for them, which I couldn't afford because it was, I think I worked it out to be like $2,000 almost every infusion that I had. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have them eight weekly. Yeah. So I couldn't have afforded it. So yeah, we finally got that approved and then I started on infliximab, which is what I am on right now. And is infliximab working? It is amazing. Oh, yay! Yeah, so I haven't had a flare per se in a really long time. Oh my goodness. I'm not technically in remission yet, which is really what I'm hoping for. Um, And I did have a really big hiccup with infliximab, which is when all my brain stuff started coming into play. Yes. Is there like hope that infliximab will just stop like any more lesions appearing around the body? Yeah, that's sort of the aim is that I just stop, stop getting the ulcers and the lesions. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it would be really simple. I had this, again, this idea about getting diagnosed that was really linear, that was like you have symptoms, you go to the doctor, you get a diagnosis, you like, you know, you go home, you deal with the diagnosis and then you get treated and then it's all good. Yeah. But it's not like that. So it's a lot more cyclic than that. And I didn't expect it to take this long, I don't think, for at least to find a drug that worked, um, let alone to put me into remission. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm still very hopeful that infliximab will be the thing that does it. But I'm not sort of like <laughs> holding out as much hope that it'll happen so quickly anymore yeah yeah because I think yeah it's easier that way I don't grieve as often if I'm patient with it yeah yeah have you always been so open and honest about sharing all all of this of what you're going through? no no way I mean it was everyone in my life has always known that I've been sick like it's always been like a running joke like Holly's never at school Holly is Mm -hmm. always sick I would catch anything but I was especially when I was a teenager so embarrassed about it and so many of my symptoms were embarrassing yeah like my gut stuff was so embarrassing and I tried to keep it secret as like as much as I could from my friends you know like if I was unwell and I wasn't at school one day and someone would like ask how I was doing I'd be like no no I'm all good and then it would come back and everyone at school would be like well then why the fuck aren't you at school yeah (laughs) And I was like, I actually have really bad diarrhea. Yeah. (laughs) I'm actually bleeding from my gut. Yeah. Um, But I didn't want to admit it. I was, it was embarrassing. Yeah. And then especially, especially when the vulval ulcers came up, I was like mortified. I was like, oh my God, I can't tell anyone about what's going on. So I didn't for a really long time. And now I will talk about my vulva with anyone who's willing to listen. I like do not care. Yeah, I don't care about any of it anymore. I'm like, I'll talk to you about poo and like anything you want if you're willing to listen to me talk about it. Why do you think that changed? It's such a big part of my life now. Yeah, And it's so much easier to be honest about it, especially when I can't do things. It's so much easier to just be like, hey, look, I'm in a lot of pain because I have an open ulcer on my vulva and I can't walk or, you know, like I'm not going to do that today because my gut is flaring and I'm vomiting and 
I have diarrhea. Yeah. <laughs> so, sorry about um, it. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, and also it's nice to not be embarrassed about the things that are happening to me every day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so this experience with chronic illness is inspiring some of your art that you're doing. Yeah. Tell yeah. us about that. Um, so I went to Toy and did the management degree, fully thinking I wanted to be a stage manager, which I very quickly realized was not the case. Okay. And I started to get like these real uh, desires to make installation art. Cool. And then sort of didn't really do anything about it, moved to Auckland, started producing, really like producing art. And then I got sick and I was like, I'm going to, I got really sick and I was like, I'm going to take a break from that stuff and I'm just going to focus on, you know, getting the money in and, and trying to get better. And then I eventually ended up not being able to work my retail job anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a combination of COVID and how sick I was getting. They wanted me to stop working my doctors. So I stopped working and all of a sudden I was home all the time and thinking about being sick all the time. Yeah. And I think it was at first like a real way for me to busy myself. And then I think it was really when my brain stuff began. It was like, oh yeah, I definitely want to make, make some work. Yeah. So that was sort of where the thread, the installation I'm making at the moment is called Thread Count. Yeah. And that's sort of where that was really not born from. I think it, all of it was born from my whole lived experience of being sick, but it was the motivator to actually do it. Cool. Yeah. So I um, was put in touch with a company called Touch Compass. Yep. And they had mostly done dance in the past, but mm-hmm. they're moving into a lot of other art forms now. And yeah, they said that they would fund me through their Illuminati fund to run some hui and to do some, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh my God, brain fog. What's it called when when you're trying to make something? Development? Development. There we go. (laughs) Yes. So they said that they would fund me for the development period. So I ran a hui with a series of hui with some other people in Auckland my age who lived with chronic illness which was so cool because I all I had wanted for like two years was a support group yeah I just want like a room with like some chairs in a circle you know I just want to like talk to people so that was really cool we did some over zoom and we did some in person and I got a bunch of content and I was writing poems this whole time because that's what I've always like to do it's yeah. always been like a way for me to get the stuff in my brain out and yeah so I sort of built the idea from there and then again Touch Compass was like we're building an event that's going on the waterfront which was supposed to be happening in September yeah and so I started looking for more funding and then eventually they were like we have enough money and we want to fund it oh. so they funded the entire thing for me and been absolutely incredible that is amazing. Yeah, I've been building it and now we're just sort of waiting until we can safely put it up. Oh my goodness, I want to go and see it. Yeah, I will send you the dates when they're absolutely confirmed. Yes, and I'll make sure everybody knows so we can yeah. all go and have a look. That oh, is so do. awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's where I'm at now. And you're feeling okay? Yeah, up and down a wee bit. I've 
the, the brain stuff they haven't been able to figure out. Okay. So I, I had some really strange episodes, which was happening when I was getting my infusions. Oh, so okay. they assumed that my infusions were causing something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would all of a sudden lose the feeling in my body. Like I couldn't walk all of a sudden. Um, yeah. The first time it happened, my vision went and I was mm-hmm. like, oh, this is weird. And then I stood up at, to get out of bed and I just fell over. My leg gave way underneath me. And then over the next sort of like three hours, my arms went numb, my full legs went numb and it was happening on both sides. Yeah. So that was really confusing to them. Yeah. And so I got sent to neurology. They did an MRI and that was another phone call that I was like not prepared for. Yeah. Because I think when I first got diagnosed with Bichette's, I was like, worst case scenario, it's in my brain or it's in my heart. And that's not going to happen to me. I was like, that is the worst thing that can happen. And I never expected it to. So I went and had the MRI and I was like, I was so sure it was going to come back fine. Like so, so sure. And I was uh, at home, I was watching Eight Simple Rules. Do you remember that show? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I used to like pause that, like we, it would be, I'd like record it on tape or whatever, yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. you know, and then I would pause it and I'd be like, I want to make my room like their room. Yes. Because it was so cool. <laughs> so I was binge watching that show for some reason and I was sitting on my bed and I was bawling my eyes out because I was watching the episode where the dad dies. Oh. Yeah. Do you remember that? Because the actor actually died, died in it. And yeah. I was oh, so sad. Yeah. And I was crying. And then I got a phone call again, hospital number from Auckland. I was like, yeah. oh no, oh no, they're gonna tell me I'm fine. Yeah. And so I <laughs> answered, I was like, hello. And it was my neurologist, and she was like, Hi, Holly. And oh. I was just like, Oh no. Yeah, I I've could heard just this hear Holly it. before. <laughs> yeah. And she was like, So we found something in your brain. And I was like, I just like couldn't believe it. I was like, What? what she was like yeah we found some lesions they're very small there's two of them they're it's all good she just yeah so she wanted to let me know because I was headed away for Easter weekend yeah and then I went away and I was out of reception the whole time and it was really stressful because I was like oh my god I can't miss these calls yeah they were like examining the results with other doctors to try and figure out where they were coming from yeah anyway managed to get a hold of them again when I got home and they so they were demyelinating lesions like an MS Mm -hmm. so they were and because my mum has MS they were really worried that it was possibly MS. So that's why I went in and had my lumbar puncture, Mm -hmm. which was not fun, as you know. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And my mum was – I was so nervous about the lumbar puncture and my mum was talking to me about about hers because she's had lots of them. Yeah. And she was – I heard the horror stories from her growing up. And she was like, I should never have told you any of that. And then she was like, but don't worry, Holly. Mine were only bad because I had a student doing them. Oh, she no, like, you, had, you had a student. And then I had a student yeah. do mine. <laughs> and I was like, this is classic. I was so nervous for it. But it was, you know, it was. it's never as bad yeah. as you think it's going to be. And you just, you know, you get through whatever you're yeah. going through. So um, it was it was fine. And it came back clean. So yes. I didn't have MS. So they were like, it's neurobichettes. Okay. Um, so that hasn't really sorted itself out. There, it's really unclear what's happening and why it's happening. Okay. And my lesions are in my corpus callosum, 
which is the part in the middle of your brain that connects your two hemispheres. Mm-hmm. So it's the part that um, sends and translates your messages. So they don't know a lot about it and they don't know what symptoms it might be causing. Right. So yeah, I've been having strange neuro episodes that are like seizures, but they're not epileptic. Okay. That they're still trying to figure out what they are and what we can do to treat them. And yeah, and then I've had tachycardia for the last few months. So my heart rate is always sort of like above 110 beats per minute, Yeah, which they're worried about at the moment. So yeah, it's not, I'm not in the clear, but things are slowly getting sorted and yeah, it's sort of like a new normal now. So it's easier. How does it feel knowing that there's a name for it? So good. Okay. (laughs) So good. Yeah. Like I said, it was like 15, 16 years of like gunning to get a diagnosis and it was all I wanted for such a long time. And you, yeah, it's so much easier to navigate the health system when you have a diagnosis, which is such a problem. Yeah. Because, you know, I had Bichette's this whole time. I just didn't have a word to put with it. And I was having the problems the whole time, but I wasn't treated for them because I didn't have the name. So, yeah, it's made an insane change. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I just always feel so honoured that people choose me and that's so chronic to share. (laughs) So I know that everybody listening at home really appreciates it as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Something that really stood out for me throughout Holly's interview was that feeling of wanting to find a community. And I'm sure I'm not alone in saying that I've felt the exact same. I am so grateful that the Instagram algorithm did its thing so Holly and I were able to connect. If you want to find out more about Holly and her art, you can find her on Instagram at Holly Doesn't Feel Well. And don't forget, I'm at That's So Chronic. Thank you for listening. If this is your first time, welcome. We have new episodes every Tuesday and sometimes on a Thursday if there's something important going on. So make sure you've pressed subscribe or follow so you never miss an episode. You could also leave a review if you liked this episode. That's super handy in getting more ears listening to That's So Chronic from around the world to hopefully spread awareness and more importantly, hope. And don't forget, if you have Bichette's disease and you're interested in connecting with Holly, don't be afraid to reach out.